0: This is Fred Velez. This episode of Zilch is dedicated to the memory of the other Davy Jones, David Bowie, who slipped away at the too young age of 69. Musician, artist, innovator, he set the trends that everyone else followed. Thank you, David. Safe journeys. We also like to dedicate this podcast to the memory of longtime monkey friend and collaborator, Bill Martin, who wrote All Your Toys, Corrode the Door into Summer, and worked with Michael Nesmith on television parts and elephant parts. Thanks, Bill, for all the music and all the laughs. What number is this, Jim?
1: Episode 48, Dr. Roseanne Welch on The Monkey's Cultural Impact, Melanie and I recap Mickey Dolan's Live in Annapolis, and this month's news update.
0: (laughs) Okay, don't get excited, man. It's because I'm short, I know.
2: You're listening to Zilch, a monkey's podcast.
1: Everybody, and welcome to Zilch, your monkeys podcast. We're a little short on personnel today since Ken, Craig, and Jeff are all monkeying around on assignment, but they will all be back soon. Uh, as you may have guessed, I'm Sarah Clark, and on my charming and delightful is my left co host, Melanie Mitchell. Hello. Now, due to a lot of goings-on behind the scenes, it's been a little longer than usual since we put up a new episode, But so we have a lot of news to cover. However, you're going to have to wait on all that breaking news until Melanie and I talk about the Mickey Dolans concert that we went to. Uh, it was really awesome, wasn't it? It was.
3: It was the tail end of a weekend spin through the Northeast that uh, Mickey and his band did. We got to see him on uh, Martin Luther King Day.
1: Yes, at the uh, Rams Head Live in Annapolis, Maryland. Uh, Since it was a holiday weekend, I was able to sneak away from work. I flew up to Maryland. We spent a day puttering around Washington, D.C., uh... we went to a couple of museums i got to go to the library of congress which being a librarian i was a colossal nerd and enjoyed a great deal and melanie very sweetly let me just kind of geek out about things and then uh... we also just kinda drove around maryland a little bit but the uh... crowning uh... high point of the weekend was definitely going to annapolis to see mickey Dolan's in concert
3: um, what were your thoughts overall about the show melanie I had a wonderful time. This isn't the first time I've seen Mickey solo, but um, it's always great to see him and his backing band, Uh, and it's such a wonderful little venue. It's very small, very tight. Um, We were really packed in like sardines, but we had a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I thought it was uh, overall a great show. I had never seen Mickey
1: solo before, so it was really interesting. I know I described the Nashville concert, the Tukey show, as being very kind of loose and casual but as you'll see kind of from our stories throughout, uh, they took the whole loose and casual vibe to an entirely different level with this show. Uh, it was uh, the usual personnel were there, Wayne Avers, of course, on lead guitar, John Billings on bass, Rich Dard on percussion, David Alexander on keyboards and some backup vocals, and of course, Coco Dolan's, but we'll get to talking about her, especially in a little bit. And then running the slideshow in the back, uh, Andrew Sandoval, who was actually sitting about 10 feet behind behind our table which was kind of really cool so Mm -hmm. (laughs) just seeing him back i looked
3: over my shoulder and i said i recognize that guy yeah yeah (laughs) it was a lot of fun and
1: we actually ran into uh at least at one Zilcher who was at the i think there were several who were at the concert but the one we ran into at the show was hubert hi hubert Yes, the one we ran into the, at the show was Hubert Dodson and uh he talked a little bit about the show and I guess he got to talk to some of the band later about his uh, about Star Wars stuff which I kind of wish I'd been in on that con- that conversation because it sounds like it was a lot of fun so
3: Well, you were standing in line to meet Mickey at the time.
1: Yeah, I think we were all standing in line to meet Mickey at the time. But that worked (laughs) out real well, too, because I had an errand to run. And our friend Megan actually uh, uh, had a album that she wanted Mickey to sign to sort of complete a uh, set of signatures. But we'll get to that here in a second. What were some of the standout moments in the show for you? Um, One of the things I remember especially was the performance of Last Train to Clark not the performance, so much as the story we heard after it.
0: Thank you, what a great song. Tommy Boyce and Bobby Hart. You know, I just did a, yeah, um, I just did a, a, a little uh, Q&A with Bobby Hart, and he told me a story which I would never heard before. Or maybe he told me and I forgot. <laughs> um, but the, uh, you know that bit in the middle? Right? Well, those were words uh, (laughs) originally. And they they were like, he said it was something like, I'm just gonna get there and the train is on to something. And they're And he said, I I came in the studio that night to record that lead vocal, and I was doing like three lead vocals a night, you know, and only having heard the songs a couple of times in those days uh, for the show. And he said, You came in and, and we taught you the song, you know, and we got to that part. And I said, I've been up for 14 hours already, probably. And I said, I can't do that. I can't lie, forget it. And so they turned it into.
1: So, what did you think about Mickey's story? I... I mean, it makes total sense. I would never have uh, thought of that, but yeah, that uh, they were going to try to make him do these crazy lyrics, and he was like, no. (laughs) (laughs) Well,
3: I have to wonder, this is the man who can actually sing going down. I I think that song is actually better off without that bridge. Yeah, I think it's one of those things that
1: was maybe an accident of history, but was perhaps a happy accident. Of history because I mean it took me years to be able to sing the lyrics to "Going Down," but I can I can keep up with the okay, barely as you guys can tell. And so that was definitely one standout moment of the show because this was a solo Mickey Dolan show. We didn't just get monkeys' hits, which I appreciated. We got lots of other things that were sort of key in his solo catalog that he's done over the years. Um, One of them was Johnny Be Good. He talked a little bit about how he'd used that as his audition song. And then they leapt into the song. And I mean, it was good, but it was fast good. Like I was expecting him to go on, you know, full on Marty McFly at one point and start, you know, Wayne Aver start giving us some thrash metal or something. 'Cause they were rocking.
3: Certainly were, and when they got to the end of the song, Mickey looked over at Wayne and said, "What tempo was that?" <laughs> yes. And then thre- threatened to have the red wool removed from the rider. <laughs> Before
0: the monkeys, I actually did have a life. Woo! Believe it or not, yes. I uh, had a uh, uh. a group called uh, Mickey and the One Nighters, <laughs> a cover band. And uh, we only played one night. <laughs> it was uh, it was cool, and I would do you know uh, all the covers at, at the time: House of the Rising Sun and Money, Money, very strong. And then I did one song uh, by Chuck Berry: I'm Gonna Do it for You Now. And you may be asking yourselves, or maybe not, <laughs> why is he covering a Chuck Berry tune? Well, because. Mm-hmm. This was my audition piece for the Monkees. This is the song that got me the gig!
1: tempo going on or you'll have to do these things without caffeine i can't imagine
3: but i was even more impressed with the performance of purple haze oh my god that is oh
1: yeah and and i love how they did it because they started it out as as with the joke, you know the first couple of bars, and then you know uh, Mickey starts going into, it and then the, and then the crowd all scream "Davy," and you know kind of made a joke. We want
3: Davy, we want the monkeys. And this is Mickey <laughs> saying, telling the story. Yeah, <laughs> and then um, and then he was like, "Hey,
1: you know we sound pretty good." And then they just went into the rest of the rest of the song. And oh man, I mean they were all on that night, but Wayne Avers, I mean. He is a treasure. Whatever they're paying him, <laughs> it might not be enough because he just when he whenever he gets a spotlight, both in the solo shows and in the monkeys shows, he just nails it.
3: I think it's interesting that, that some of the highlights of this show were the non monkeys pieces because when it's the monkeys pieces we're we're hearing something very similar to what we hear at a monkeys concert. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, similar not the same but similar yeah it's it's nice to hear the 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 really different things right
1: because it's the same band and they're mostly doing it in the same way it's not like when you go to a shoeslade blues show and peter does clarksville but it's in a whole different vein Um, right they they do them very faithful to the monkey show which makes sense because that's the core of the monkeys touring band but they do them well but i love the new i'm with you i love the New stuff that we get to hear that we don't normally uh, get, yeah. you know, say in a monkey's song. Mm-hmm. And I think some of my favorite moments were Coco's mm-hmm. uh, vocals, because she got to do a couple of numbers solo. And then she did a duet with Mickey crying in the rain, which was mm-hmm. gorgeous as always. But I think my favorite thing that Coco did Was Mickey handed the reins over to her while he stepped off to get a drink? And she basically said, Well, Mickey grew up in LA, but I grew up in San Francisco, and this was the sound I was used to. And she launched into White Rabbit, which was just incredible. She tore the roof off of that place. Mm -hmm.
0: place. (laughs) Come on, Coco, sing a song.
1: you think about it?
3: Well, I've been to the, um, I've been to the Ram's Head a few times before. Um, It is very intimate. Um, The seating is very tight, as I mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. Um, But you're very close to the stage and the stage is tiny. So there's there's just a wonderful feeling of um, being, you know, very close and very, very up and personal.
1: Yeah, we were getting to hear basically this top drawer rock band essentially in this small little room with maybe 300 people in it and one of the things i liked about the venue is it's actually a combination restaurant and concert space and you can do the you know dinner and a show deal where you have dinner over in the restaurant and then they walk you over to your seats in the venue and I don't know if this is for everybody or just for us, but our same waiter who waited on us at dinner actually took care of us over during the show. And mm-hmm. he was a really sweet kid. I think, it, I'm guessing he was like t- maybe 22, 23. He, would you say he was pretty young?
3: Yeah, I mean, obviously he had to be at least 21 or he wouldn't have been able to serve drinks. But Right. Uh, yeah. I
1: don't think he was much more than that. And mm-hmm. towards the end, um, I we were settling up kind of during the last couple of songs in the show and he brought my credit card back just as Mickey was starting into I'm a Believer. And then he he kind of had already guessed already. I suspect that we were uh, hardcore fans. I think probably the podcast t-shirts were a bit of a giveaway. (laughs) And so he turns to me and says, is that the first guy who did that song? And I looked at it again and I kind of did math in my head. I was like, well, yeah, Shrek came out in about 2000. He probably would have been about, oh, seven or eight years old. And I said, yeah, that's the original guy who sang that song. And he was like, oh, my gosh, that's awesome. This is my favorite song. I'm going to go run off and record this. And so he want, went off to do for that, uh, start recording the the song. And I started looking for my Metamucil. And it was just, <laughs> it was hilarious.
3: Sarah, I just got to say this. Yes. Mickey, Mickey, we found him. We found the guy. We found the guy who doesn't know that you sang this song before Shrek. You can stop saying that now because we found him Amen. and we educated him. <laughs> 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 He's a waiter in Annapolis, Maryland. Okay, it's done.
1: <laughs> oh gosh, I'll have to come up with a new line.
3: Well, so, one of the things that I love was that at the end of the concert, oh, after yeah, yeah. I'm a believer, you know, Mickey left the stage and the rest of the band were still just jamming, you know. And there was this moment in which I guess Rich and Wayne caught each other's eye and decided that they were going to turn this into a competition. Mm-hmm. And so they're just jamming at this point. They're just playing out those last few chords. There's probably a technical term for it. I, if it was classical music, I'd call it a cadenza. But anyway... Um, they, would, they wouldn't They would let it end, mm-hmm. and, and there was this back and forth. You know, the drum would add one more big roll and fill and, and flourish, and then, you know, the guitar would, you know, go into another screaming chord change, and the drum would play some more, and they were just going and going. It seemed to last maybe five minutes. It was probably less than that, but God, it felt like an eternity, and it was so much fun because you could see the humor in their eyes as they were doing this to each other. Yeah, and it's just, it shows
1: that that band either, because they've played most of these songs literally hundreds of times live at this point. Mm-hmm. So they either have developed a amazing chemistry between each other that you could kind of feel during the show or they do a really good impression of it because it just seemed like throughout the evening that they were having just about as much fun as the folks out in the audience were. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it was just, it was a great time. And, you know, everybody was just kind of kicking back and having fun. It was a really laid back um, experience. And it was really a lot of fun. Like I said, again, to hear those, not just Mickey, but those musicians get to kind of cut loose in, you know, for 300 people instead of 3000. It was a really awesome experience.
3: I don't even think that venue seats 300, to be perfectly honest. (laughs) (laughs) It is intimate,
1: and it's a lot of fun, and if you ever find yourself um, looking for something to do of a weekend in Annapolis, Maryland, uh, even if, you know, a monkey isn't in town, if you see an act that sounds good at the ram's head, it's a... Totally awesome way to spend a weekend. So, and then of course after the concert proper went uh, meet and greet. I went through. I was uh, getting a CD signed for a friend. I took care of that, and it's his birthday present. So I'm not going to say who, though he may guess. I got talked very briefly with Donna Dolans, who was a sweetheart as always, and uh, and then our friend Megan, as mentioned above, got Mickey's signature on her copy of Pisces, Aquarius, Capricorn, and Jones, which I know meant a whole lot. To to her and mickey actually commented on all the all the signatures she got which i thought was real cool that was basically our evening unless there's anything you wanted to add it was cold well yes
3: very cold
1: it was but cold it- and i left my big coat in tulsa but we muddled through <laughs> i managed not to get hypothermia even though melanie was really concerned about me but she let me borrow her jacket and her other jacket and it was all fabulous so mm-hmm. So that was the concert. That's not the only thing that has been going on in the monkey world lately. We've got a lot of other kind of miscellaneous breaking news that's been going on. The day after the Mickey Dolan show was the start of the uh, Rhino Start Your Ear Off Right uh, promotion that's been in a lot of brick-and-mortar stores. We actually went to a shop in Annapolis the morning after the concert and kind of saw some of the stuff that they had on display there. Um, I actually have picked up a couple of things. I didn't get them in Maryland because I had a small suitcase, but I picked up the Grateful Dead um, Shrine exposition hall uh, 1967 uh, Set of three LPs and have been listening to that and then I also was able to get uh, Devo's album and uh, because I like both of those bands at all uh, as well I've still been looking around for the cereal box singles, but I can't find them anywhere around here. So I'm hoping they'll turn up somewhere. And worst comes to worst, I can probably get them online. But I really kind of want to, since this is a record store promotion, I kind of want to uh, get at least one of those things out, out of a record store if I can. So. Mm-hmm. So be uh, checking your local record store. I think also some chains such as Barnes & Noble, Hastings. I think there are some other chains that do it too. If you go to Rhino's website, they actually have a link where you can search for all of the different stores that are involved, and they start your ear off right uh, promotion and with a map, and it. it's very convenient and everything. So that's one thing I wanted to get everybody up to date on. Um, second, I believe we have some news on the Blu-ray. Is that right?
3: that is correct the blu-ray was supposed to be out on january 29th which was yesterday as we record this it is not uh they've had to delay it until april 29th but it is still coming so hang in there folks we are going to have our special magic beautiful bright and clear pictures soon yes it's
1: going to be worth the wait from what we they've released about the special features and i suspect i have no knowledge that you guys don't have, but I suspect we may hear about even more features than they've released. It wouldn't surprise me if they're uh, gonna tell us about some more things as the release date, release gate, Date gets closer.
0: Here it comes The monkeys the complete series is coming to Blu-ray all 58 episodes carefully remastered from the original 35 millimeter prints in high definition for the very first time. 10 jam-packed disc that also include the
3: movie head. The 1969 TV special, 33 and a third revolutions per monkey. Plus, an exclusive bonus disc full of surprises. Pre-order now at monkeys.com. This set is not available
0: anywhere else and is strictly limited to 10,000 individually numbered copies. The Monkeys: the complete series, on Blu-ray, only at monkeys.com.
1: And then on another note, um, monkeys, dolls, action figures, whatever...
3: Hold on, hold on, Sarah, I'm going to interrupt you. Have you taken your sedative? Are you calm? I am calm. You are calm, okay? I'm going to say this so you don't have to, right? Okay. Okay. The, The Mike dolls will have hats. That is all. Moving on. Yes, moving on.
1: <laughs> oh, God, we have survived. There will be hats on the Mike dolls, all of them, eight inch and twelve inch. We also know about two concert dates so far. There is going to be a concert date. I believe it's tomorrow, January thirty first, in Metairie, Louisiana.
3: Um, or actually, it today. But it's today. Oh. By the time our listeners listen to this. It'll already be in the past. Don't you love podcast verb tenses? (laughs) Yes, they're doing a festival, um, part of the Mardi Gras celebration in Metairie, Louisiana. Mm -hmm. And then we also have an announced date, May 18th, in Fort Myers, Florida. Those are the only two confirmed dates. I can also tell you that Mickey just announced a solo date on May 7th. Mm. So that would imply that the tour, whatever tour there is going to be, could not start any earlier than May 7th. But who knows? We're just reading the tea leaves at this point.
1: Yes. And in, in selection of other tea leaves, I do want to mention we have seen what appears to be the poster art for the 50th anniversary. It was uh, included in the the advert somebody found for the Florida date, and it only shows two faces on the, uh, on the poster. However, this is going to be a good show, whoever's there, because I got to see... Mickey and Peter performing as the monkeys in Nashville and Melanie got to see them. What was it four times something
3: like four that th- four times last year yeah
1: yeah and i I thought it was amazing it really it is really uh they do a really Good job. They, they bring it. It was a uh, wonderful one of my favorite monkeys concerts I've been to. I mean there's not no such thing as a bad monkeys concert, but it was one of the standout shows because just it was a, a different vibe. It was a lot of fun. You could tell they were having a great time and um, please do not worry if you are worried because I think it will be a wonderful show whether there are two or three people on stage. Mm-hmm. So, do you have anything to add on that point?
3: Um, something that I'll add is that the artwork that you mentioned that just has the two faces on it Mm -hmm. also has a blank area where a third face could be added. That doesn't necessarily mean it will be, but they did leave space.
1: Yes. And let's just say we know from in the past that say in the 1980s tours, Nez was not really involved, but he still popped up for a few dates here and there. At the Greek Theater and uh, in 86 and uh, again at the Universal in 89. And who knows? Who knows? He will do what he will do. And But it's going to be a spectacular show either way. And with the mm-hmm. 50th, we have to imagine they've got some pretty cool stuff in store for the set list. Yeah. I'm getting really excited about it. And I'm also excited about our interview today. Uh, A couple of months ago, I had an opportunity to sit down with uh, Roseanne Welch to talk about her forthcoming book on the monkeys and their cultural impact. We talk a lot about the TV show and some about the music too, and a lot just about um, the monkeys impact on culture in the 60s and the 60s impact on what the monkeys did uh her book book will be coming out this coming spring uh she doesn't have a release date yet but start looking it to get in the next few months and of course we'll have an announcement when that happens but i think at this point we will go ahead and transition over to our interview our conversation with dr roseanne welch Today on Zilch, we may be welcoming one of the foremost monkeys geeks we've ever had on the show, and I think most of our listeners know that's a pretty high bar. She is currently completing her book titled The Metatextual Menagerie That Was the Monkeys*, which will be coming out next spring from McFarland and Company. Now, to my knowledge, this will be the first scholarly text to provide a critical analysis of the band TV show and cultural phenomenon we all know and love. When not examining 33 and a third revolutions per monkey for its existential subtexts, Dr. Roseanne Welch teaches screenwriting in the RTVF department at California State University Fullerton and for the Stevens College MFA in screenwriting. As a television writer slash producer, her credits include Beverly Hills 90210, Picket Fences, and Touched by an Angel. A special note to the Hoovians out there, she contributed a chapter for Torchwood Declassified, investigating mainstream cult television, and an essay in Doctor Who and Race, an anthology. In addition, Dr. Welch is co-editor of the Encyclopedia of Women in American History. Her fondness for the monkeys began while sitting in front of a small black-and-white kitchen television at the age of five, but we'll get to all that in a little bit. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Welch.
2: Well, thank you so much for inviting me.
1: Yeah, we're really thrilled to have you. Now folks can tell from your introduction that you started out as a script writer before making the shift to academia. I did. And you did, yes, and most of your books and articles have been analyses of various TV shows and other pop culture phenomena. How did you make the shift from creating pop culture to
2: critiquing it? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I probably would have to say I shifted in and out I started out of college as a high school American lit teacher and that allowed me to teach history and lit at the same time and Mm -hmm. to tell students that it was their job to decide what E.E. Cummings really meant when he wrote his poetry (laughs) yes and I enjoyed that Mm -hmm. Uh, but I always had dreamed of being a television writer so I left Cleveland which is where I'm from And came to Los Angeles, not knowing a soul out here. Um, And I was a teacher here because I needed a job that would pay the mortgage. (laughs) But I uh, attended some classes and the advice I always got was, if you want to be in television, you have to be in television. So I had to quit teaching and take a job doing the Devil Wears Prada, fetching coffee for writers and all the useless production assistant slash secretary work that was available. Um, and so I did that um, for a bunch of TV shows. I was at the Stephen Cannell Company, which was like the hub of pop culture at that time. He was doing The A-Team and Hunter and 21 Jump Street and Riptide. Um, you could, he had eight shows on the air wow. um, in prime time. He was the most successful independent producer ever. So that was fun. And yeah. I learned a lot there. Um, and I started writing spec scripts. And what you had to do is you had to write scripts – that were samples of shows that existed and keep trying to get producers to read them and tell you that you were good enough to hire, which wasn't easy. Mm-hmm. But I eventually, and then I passed through several TV shows and you'd start to get offers and the show would get canceled and whatnot. And uh, my first big freelance break was on Nine Hundred Two and 90210, which was a huge popular culture. sensation. Yes. Um, and I really enjoyed that, and the people on that show, and then Picket fences, which had a couple of Emmys, but couldn't never make anything in the ratings. so I just know
1: what was on. but yeah, I,
2: I love that show. It was mm-hmm. really brilliant, but and i I can say that because I didn't invent it. I just tried. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Um, and then I ended up untouched, which was another level of popular culture, and it was all wonderful. And I spent seven years on that show um and really enjoyed it. um but in the world of TV, things grow and change and you tend to get pigeonholed. And when it started to look like there weren't a lot of those kinds of shows on the air anymore and no one thought that girls could write cop shows that well, right? I thought I should be thinking about what else I'm doing. Um, and I had planned always to get a master's degree and a PhD, but I had left Ohio quickly right after my BA because I wanted to be in television. <laughs> So I figured that was my time to do that. So I just got into academia and started studying, and I was going to study the American South because I was one of those kids who grew up reading Gone with the Wind. Ah, Before I learned, you know, there were reasons one shouldn't worship Gone with the Wind anymore. Just a few, yes. Just a few. So uh, while doing that, um, some of the professors I spoke with told me that obviously my professional background was in television, so that would look good on a resume, and why don't I look into that more deeply? I didn't think anybody would ever take television seriously in academia. I thought it would get in my way and right. make it look less important.
1: Yeah, I, and I could understand that concern, yeah.
2: It's not Shakespeare, but then it is Shakespeare sometimes.
1: Yeah, Shakespeare was pop culture back in the day. People don't that, think about that, but...
2: That's exactly right. And we don't know always what he meant. And the beautiful thing about critical studies, which is what I fell in love with, is you look at a piece, and you have to look at it from all sides. You look at what the writers originally meant, if you can find them to speak to, or if they have left that information in writing, which nowadays more people do. Right. And you look at what the actors, how they interpreted it and presented it. And you look at what the audience brings to the table and what they take away from it. And it's so often something more and different than what the writers ever intended.
1: Well, I think that was certainly true of the monkeys. Um, Oh, my God,
2: yes. (laughs) I
1: mean, I don't think anybody sat down and said, let's create something that they'll be doing some sort of computer radio show about 49 years later. I, I, I don't think that was on their radar. Speaking of, how did you become a fan of the monkeys and why do you think you've stayed a fan of the monkeys?
2: Oh, that's so fun. Um, I've used the monkeys forever. I was in love with them when I was a kid, and I'm a first-generation fan, so Woo! I was browned in 1967. Um, and I was... Uh, it was the time when my, my cousin and I would reenact movies and TV shows in the basement and do mm-hmm. all those things. And we were always good about picking different boys so that we weren't competing.
1: Right. Who are you?
2: I have always been a Mickey girl. Not now. This is a family show. <gasps> Okay. Always my choice, partially because I just like funny guys and partially because my cousin was the Davy girl, so I couldn't steal him away from her. Well, yeah. Um, but I in, in watching them, they just stuck with me. And of course, then in the 80s, when they came back in the 23 Union, my husband worked at a theater in Cleveland called the Playhouse Square Foundation.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah.
2: And when they were preparing that tour, they came to a New Year's Eve event at that theater as their first sort of practice performance.
1: Oh, wow.
2: And for me, it was hilarious because I had attempted to get into um, a New York college of acting and written a piece about what the most difficult choice in my life was when I was seven, which was, do you watch the Monkees or Gilligan's Island? (laughs) Yes. Long before DVRs. Uh So I had always been talking about them. And even in college, I would play their music. And sometimes some kid down the hall would walk by and go... Hey, isn't that a monkey song? Yeah, it is. And we'd sit around and talk and, you know, share our our love of the monkeys who weren't that well known when I was in college. Mm -hmm. But then they came back and we got to see this concert, which was brilliant to me because he worked at the playhouse. And so the employees got to come and I was standing there watching something I had never dreamed could happen. And Mm -hmm. in all the research I've done, one of the things that makes them stand out is there was an unfulfilled promise in our childhood. That you would grow up to watch the monkeys in concert. Yeah. And then they broke up. Mm
1: Uh-huh.
2: And rarely do groups get back together.
1: Yeah, and hardly ever do they get back together multiple times.
2: Exactly. So in the 80s, it was a miracle to begin with. It turned out to be sort of a present from my husband to me just before we got married. So Mm -hmm. how could you possibly give anybody a better present than a dream they had when they were seven that they thought was impossible? Right. So, of course, that re-enlivened my interest, of course. Mm -hmm. And as I got into um, academia, and I thought about what could I write about, I write for a magazine for the Writers Guild called Written By Magazine. And my scholarly goal, if you will, or my focus, is to draw attention back into the importance of writers, because we live in a world where directors are considered the auteur of yes, And I love directors, and they're all lovely and nice, but... Um, Robert Riskin who wrote many films for Frank Capra has this famous story which actually has a bad word in it so I'll clean it up (laughs) but he got tired of people saying that um, all these scripts had the Capra touch so one day when he had script due, he handed in 200 blank pages and said there put your (laughs) touch on that (laughs) I love it which is true a (laughs) director is wonderful but he can't direct from nothing yep So I've always been interested in trying to turn the focus back to the importance of writers who start with a blank page and make up the stories that we fall in love with. And I don't really care where the camera goes on those stories. It's the experience of what happens to my favorite characters that I fall in love with.
1: Of course. I think that's true of most of us.
2: I do. You know, but that's why it's so odd to think that we fell into this world where you can say a movie was directed by Steven Spielberg, but you can't remember who wrote it.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm trying
2: to correct that with my my scholarship which sounds so important, but it's really me trying to make writers more um more important again.
1: Well, it's a wonderful mission and and I think with the monkeys particularly I think it's important because in some ways I think the the contribution of the writers can be downplayed. Um, you wrote uh, the, the article you were talking about earlier as I was reading that. I was really fascinated to understand just how scripted those shows were because I'd always had this vision in my head that the guys in Jim Frawley were just ad-libbing all of it, but they really weren't.
2: They were not. These were very talented comedy writers from previous shows or very young up-and-coming writers, and they planned much of it. Yes, there was some improv going on on the stage, but even Peter admits in one of the um, director's commentaries that if they had something to do, they'd talk it through, they'd have to block it, they'd have to arrange the cameras. It couldn't be that spontaneous. So they did work from the things the writers created. And, of course, Mickey had always been a TV star. So he understood that you go to the script, you memorize the script. If you have questions, you go to the writers, you ask about changes, and they get made in the script.
1: Right. Yeah.
2: So, you know, to me, that was an important thing to prove. And really, I'd been writing for Written By, as you mentioned, I did some Doctor Who stuff because mm-hmm. I adore Russell T. Davies.
1: <laughs> He's awesome.
2: He's brilliant. And the stuff he did was brilliant. And uh-huh. I, I enjoyed doing that. And, and so that job, that job, I'm on the editorial board, so I don't really do it for a living. But right. if I recommend a story and no other writer wants it, then I end up writing it. <laughs> so I think of things that I'd like to read about right. and, after, and that let me meet people I'd like to meet.
1: Exactly, and and it was really fascinating reading um, your interviews with the with the screenwriters of the Monkeys, and because you were a writer too, and you understood that process. And speaking of that, in what ways do you think your interest in the Monkeys has influenced you as a screenwriter, and then later on as a pop culture scholar?
2: I think that what happened was. I learned through the osmosis of watching the monkeys in rerun forever
1: mm-hmm.
2: how important the message was in what you're writing. And so even when I teach students about screenwriting, I start with a theme. What is the point? What Everyone has a message. Everyone has something we'd like to put out into the world to make the world a better place. And that sounds all unicorns and daisies. But we do. And writers through time have been doing that from Shakespeare and beyond.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's right there in the theme song. We've got something to say.
2: Exactly, and they did, and people dismissed it so quickly because they were young, and as is often discussed, you know, they weren't taken seriously originally. But if you look at the writing, first of all, they won an Emmy in their freshman year on television. Mm -hmm. That doesn't happen to every show. Think about the quality of shows that win Emmys today and how instantly they're taken seriously. Yes, to me, it's a, it's a mistake, an accident of timing that they won that for the show just as they started to the tour and become, you know, known as a legitimate band. Right. And the focus turned to the music and then all the ridiculous controversy over blah, blah, who plays in the background and those mm-hmm. things that don't matter. Right. And it took the focus away from this is a comedy program that is such a high quality that we should be thinking about that as the Frasier of its day or at least the Big Bang Theory of its day.
1: You have just legitimated what I've been saying for years, which is (laughs) that the Big Bang Theory is the monkeys of the 2000s.
2: It totally is, except because of the way the rules of television, the censorship in television, um, the Big Bang Theory can be very funny, and I enjoy it a lot, but I also don't like the dismissive way it treats the women on the show.
1: Well, at least they get some attention. But, uh, yes, we'll get... they
2: have storylines built around them, but they're falling into the tropes of Penny is stupid. And, uh-huh. um, and oh my gosh, what's her name? Bernice is tough and, and domineering. She's turning into Howard's mother, not his right. equal partner. Yeah,
1: I agree about how they've been writing Bernadette lately. Yeah. yeah.
2: And that bothers me, whereas... When I looked at the monkeys, when I first thought of looking at them scholarly, Mm -hmm. I thought, well, clearly all the girls on the show must have been chicks they were trying to go to bed with, right? And I was just too young to notice.
1: Yeah, but it's not so. It was interesting. I uh, helped Melanie Mitchell, uh, our co-host, and she also wrote the book Monkey Magic.
2: about the quite
1: Oh, she's going to love to hear that you said that Mm -hmm. uh, because she really respects a lot of the work you've done. She wrote an essay specifically on how women the, the female roles within the show, and it's really quite diverse.
2: Oh, it's so diverse. And and for me, because I have a whole chapter on feminism that I I started this whole thing with, I did the chapter on the writers from that article, and you have to send chapters to a publishing company in order to get them to approve and you know put, put forth their effort toward your piece. Mm-hmm. So I did that, and I wrote a chapter on feminism, because as I studied it, exactly, I looked around waiting to see how often, and I knew they would never, quote-unquote, go to bed with a girl in a show because of the 60s. Right. But I thought that they would be trying to and not achieving. And when I went back and looked again, I thought, not only did they never look at women as sex objects alone. Yes, they were cute girls, but they weren't ever merely that. They all had jobs. They all, in their own way, were feminists. Because every girl they ever met had a job. You know what? If she's a princess, she's a princess, okay? And that's a job. That is a job. And if you think about Royal Flush, which was written by Peter Meyerson, who I think is a really fun guy to have met. Um, She is a princess who has fallen in love with Davy. And rather than stay in America and give up her job, she goes back. And she doesn't do it because she thinks she you know, we'll have more fun being a princess. She literally says it's her obligation and her duty to her people. Mm-hmm. That is so empowering and intelligent. Right. So the, just as you go through, there's a litany. I mean, even there's that hilarious, you know, 99-pound weakling episode <laughs> with poor Mickey. Yes. And the girl in that is reading. And in mm-hmm. the end, what she wanted was an intelligent man.
1: Yeah, she winds up walking off stage with the nerd in the final reel.
2: Exactly. So I found that really, really... I just didn't expect that to be true of my show. And so my theory, if you want to get all scholarly about it. Go for it. Is that in watching that program as children, what we learned by osmosis was that in order to get the love of one of these men who, you know, if you were a Mike girl or a Peter girl or Mickey or Davey, you didn't want to be a fluffy cheerleader with no substance. You wanted to be a girl who was about something. Huh at least i think that's what i learned
1: no i think that makes a lot of sense i'd never really looked at it at that in that angle
2: that's what critical studies does you have to look at the ideologies that are being presented and in this case i'm talking about the feminist ideology that came from that show right and it was the ideology of the 60s when oh. we now talking about the second wave of feminism and they were dealing with Betty Friedan and they were talking about wanting to have their own career. So all these girls on the monkeys, and they were, you know, the bands in some like it lukewarm. Mm-hmm. You've got the journalists. You've got even in the um, original pilot, you have the girl who's in school and cares about her grades.
1: Right. <laughs> And hopefully not just for her sweet 16 party.
2: (laughs) No, exactly, exactly. She's not all about that. She's about doing well in school. And there's a teacher in that episode who cares about what her students do. Mm -hmm. And even the mother is an interesting character, you know, in the small part she plays because she reminds the daughter, you have a test tomorrow. She, in that era, might have been more interested in my daughter hooking up with a nice boy who will take care of her.
1: Well, certainly in that kind of upper middle class country club you know, economic status, they were portrayed as. Exactly.
2: So yeah. to me, those are really feminist ideological statements being made by that show.
1: Totally. So we've talked a lot about gender uh, on the Monkeys TV show, but what about uh, what do you think were some of the strengths and weaknesses of how the show dealt with
2: race? that's also an excellent question. <laughs> um, I have a whole chapter on that. and I really wasn't sure what I would find. I was worried that I would find things that were embarrassing. And there are some, but I, I've come to understand the reasons. Luckily, because the show, I think because the show happened at the peak of the civil rights movement, we don't ever have any embarrassing African American characters.
1: That's true. They don't have very large parts as a general rule, but the ones that they do show up on as are actually quite good.
2: Exactly. They are they are completely their own three-dimensional people or they're comics who are standing up for themselves. There's the lovely bit about the guy who wants them to um, pay to park. I think mm-hmm. it's in Son of a Gypsy. And, uh, and he's demanding the money, and right. that's perfectly fine. There's nothing um, – nothing is – being used against him ethnically to make a joke—it's the parking that's the joke.
1: Mhm. Yeah. They're, so African
2: Americans came out okay. Right. Uh, they did okay, as we said with women. Yes. The issue is Italians and people of Chinese descent.
1: Yes, I was about to. <laughs> let's just go ahead and touch the third rail. How can we? How do we in 2015 make se- make? P- our piece with monkey chow mein.
2: Ha. That's very hard. And I feel terrible because I very much adore Gerald Gardner, who mm-hmm. wrote it. I got to meet him when I interviewed him. His partner, Dee Caruso, had passed away just six months before I had the idea for the article. Oh, I couldn't believe that. I thought, why didn't I think of this two years ago? Mm-hmm. Um, but I got to talk to Gerald, who is a brilliant man. He's written over 80 books.
1: Oh, wow.
2: He has a marvelous career. He started his career. He started as a writer uh, of, of, Uh, newspaper stuff, um, comedic type stuff. What am I saying? He started as a writer of political comic pieces. He ended up writing a couple of books that were pictures of famous presidents in funny positions with silly um, dialogue underneath them, little dialogue bubbles. And those got the attention of the Kennedy White House. Oh, wow. Yes, and he was invited to meet there. Uh, at a lunch, and he briefly met President Kennedy, and then after President Kennedy was assassinated, he sent a letter of condolence to Robert Kennedy, who, of course, eventually was running for president, and he ended up being a speechwriter for Robert Kennedy. Wow. Yeah, so this man who was a speechwriter for Robert Kennedy, and then he did a couple of um, comics, sort of, sort of the daily show versions back in the day, political <clears throat> humor-type shows. And that's why they came to him when they were doing The Monkees because they wanted young, up-and-coming, fun guys. Right. So he ended up on the show. The problem is what he knew from television before The Monkees was Get Smart.
1: Yeah, and that was essentially... There were several of those that were very similar to Get Smart scripts.
2: Yes, you totally... Those are always Gardner and Caruso's because they they were reaching into their bag of tricks. Mm -hmm. The problem was Get Smart was such a ridiculous goofball farce That they treated minorities ridiculously. Right. Especially people of Chinese descent, and they just transferred that over to the monkeys. Uh
1: Mm-hmm.
2: They were just scraping up, and as you said earlier, I sort of know this from having lived in a writer's room. You suddenly don't have anything for next week's show. What can you do? Uh, Something we did a couple of years ago, remember, on that other show. It was really fun. Let's do that really fast. Yeah. And they don't stop and think about what is the influence of this particular story. Uh Mm-hmm. I don't think it ruined anyone. Um, I think we can look at it through the prism of time. But yeah. it's a pity that we couldn't do more. And I say the same thing about the Italian-American episodes, right? Yeah. Because we're going to have a bunch of gangsters shooting each other up and dying mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, yeah, every bad cliché.
1: Yeah, most of them are played for last. But, yeah, there are some troubling aspects to some of them. There are. But yeah. I
2: don't think they're ever bad enough. To make the show unwatchable in the way we were joking about Gone with the Wind before. Mm-hmm,
1: exactly. Yeah. And that, I think that's a good assessment of it. And so we've talked about some of the ways that the culture of the 60s for good and ill influenced how the *Monkeys* TV show was written and conceived and directed. In what ways do you think that the *Monkeys* TV show influenced the 60s?
2: I think people don't realize how much it actually did because we're talking about 1967 and we're talking about people in what was then my age range, seven to 10, who are going to be the teenagers of the 70s. And, you know, as we do with generations, it's really from from 55 to 65 and from 65 to 75 is the 60s. Mm uh-huh. hmm. Really? So the big crazy stuff that happened in the marching over the war and all that stuff, that's happening in the early 70s, not in the particularly early in the 60s. Mm-hmm. So those kids who no one was paying attention to this program because it was just a silly slapstick thing for children. But while we were watching that, we were hearing messages that were anti-war. Right. And messages that were anti-materialism. And all the things that fueled the... Real expansion of the hippie movement, and there's even, you know, as they did those wonderful end of show, and they were just trying to eat time because the episode was too short.
3: Right. Hey fellas, uh, we do a lot of pictures that have fights in it and uh, gangsters and everything. Do you ever get into fights yourselves?
0: Dude, we had an incident in Hawaii where somebody uh, remarked about my
3: hair. Uh, so what?
0: My hair being long, you know. Yeah. And there was like ten big guys <laughs> and little old me. Are you sensitive about that? Um. I'm not sensitive for, you know, if it's like, you know, in jest, somebody laughs and says, you know, just yeah. one thing. But if they carry on about it, it makes me mad.
3: If you went into a restaurant, uh, they, you know, refused to wait on you because of your hair or something like that. You know, are you quick to strike back? I invoke my constitutional rights. <laughs> and what do you do? You leave? No, I go, I invoke the Civil Rights Act. Well, there's been a lot of
1: talk about the riots that have been going on in Sunset strip. There was a riot. You know, there was a lot of vandalism.
0: There haven't really
3: been riots. They've been... A, in actuality, since I, since I was there, there have been demonstrations. and uh, But I guess a lot of people and uh, journalists don't know how to spell demonstrations, so they use the word riot because it only has four letters.
1: First, tell me a little bit, what, quickly, what are the demonstrations and who's taking place
0: in them? Well, it's mostly the kids um, that are uh, from the ages of around 15 to, I'd say, 20 or 21. Uh, under 18, it's a California law that uh, you're not able to go into a teenage nightclub Uh, that sells uh, alcoholic beverage there's a 10 o'clock curfew imposed on these young people that uh, uh, regardless of whether it's uh, a good thing or a bad thing uh, they still don't like it i think it probably has a lot to do with the fact that uh uh, of somebody telling them they have to be in by 10 o'clock that's sort of the same thing as saying that they have to cut their hair you know i mean it's it's against the law to tell somebody they can do that. Would you like to see all me. the
3: kids in the country wearing hair like yours?
0: I would like to see all the kids in the country wearing the hair like that. would like to wear it.
3: How do you feel? How, Mickey, how do you feel about it? Exactly. exactly. I'm
1: with you. I'm with you.
3: When it first happened, there was a few comments made. One by the, the sheriff of Los Angeles.
2: He said that the curfew should be abolished. He says, take the babysitting job out of the hands of the police, put it in the hands of the parents. If the parents think their kids can be out after 10, they should be out.
1: Most everybody that was there says that the vandalism was caused by... Kids in there very late, like 18, 19, 20, and 21, like
0: that age kid.
3: The only people representing the kids are the kids themselves. Now nobody not, listens to kids there. talking for kids because kids are only kids, you know. And they go through this vicious cycle. Authority does. I'm being very general because I don't want to, like, call names or anything.
0: The reason I haven't spoken all this time is because that it doesn't matter what I say, nobody will listen to me because I'm under 21. <laughs> so I'm just keeping my mouth shut.
2: But those were wonderful Time capsules of what young people in that period really thought. And I'm actually mm-hmm. shocked at how much they were allowed to say on television. Yeah,
1: it floors me now looking back. And even little b- gags like, you know, the uh, domino game that they called Southeast Asia.
2: Yes, you would yeah. never. That would be written out right now. You could yeah. not even get that on TV and, today.
1: And and Timothy Leary, I, I, I you know, wrote about that and basically just said because they were a kid show nobody was paying attention and so they could, you know, as long as they didn't try to say hell on television, they could pretty much slip stuff under the radar.
2: Correct. And the, and yet those interviews are are not even under the radar. They're so yeah. I mean, Mickey admits to being at the Sunset Strip riots. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm on television that yeah. today would be all over buzzfeed and tmz and and all that but no one took them seriously and even davy makes that mention that no one talks to me because i'm not, i'm under 21 and i don't count exactly and our generation i mean now in this world the generation now they don't realize until the voting age was moved to 18, which doesn't happen until the early 70s. Right,
1: courtesy of Boyce and Hart, in part.
2: Correct, yes, the love movement. They let us vote, which is so cool. Mm-hmm. And that's another way, I mean, imagine how effective that was. Boyce yeah. and Hart were so famous for their contribution to the show.
3: Yeah.
0: in harmony, let us walk. It's time that we all made a contribution.
2: kind of attention for a political movement is yeah. amazing.
1: Yeah, it's amazing. And, and it's just, it was just at the intersection of so many things. Not, I mean, we talk a lot about We, as kind of the monkeys community, talk a lot about the music being at the center of all these things, because there's all this issue about how we want to convince the world at large that their music is, quote, legitimate. But really, the television show had its own impact in a very strong way. And I'm glad that, that people are starting to pay attention to those aspects as well.
2: I think that's very important. And as much as I adore the music, and I do, I do, I'm not a music uh, critic or a music scholar. Right there with you. <laughs> and many people, as I've been talking about this with other you know, people who do television studies, reminded me that the music wasn't as accessible, except on the radio, which was full of other music. Mm-hmm. But kids would have to buy an album, and, right. and not everyone had the money for that. Mm-hmm. The TV was free. Yes, so everything they had to say on the program came into people's homes for free and had much more exposure than sometimes the records did.
1: And that makes total sense.
2: I think for those young kids who are then going to become the the end of the hippie movement in the mid-70s and the disillusioned ones because they were hoping to make the world a better place. And at that moment, it looked like nothing was going right. Uh-huh. So I think the TV show had a powerful effect that has been let go over the years because we think it's just about music and the Beatles and, and the Rolling Stones and all the, the sort of music. But as you know, of course, when they performed, they've always had the visuals behind them yes. that are provided these days marvelously by Andrew Sandoval.
1: Oh, wonderful, yes.
2: Wonderful stuff. It's so great to go to a concert and, and see what other things he's pulled out of who knows where. I know. <laughs> but they were doing that back in the day. Right. So they were a multimedia show before that ever happened, and they sometimes had controversial things in those moments. So even if you thought you were taking your child to a bubblegum show, you were still getting a political message along the way.
1: Absolutely, even if just in the subtext of them being up there and doing what they were doing.
2: Exactly. So yeah. I think, I do think that that's what interested me, that the show had been sloughed aside in uh-huh. favor And the music writers, again, you can't get beyond Neil Diamond and all these wonderful people, but the TV writers were just as important and just as respected in their field.
1: Yeah. And speaking of one of those TV writers, because Melanie will jump on me if I don't ask about her. Trevor Silverman is maybe not one of the first names that come to mind when we think of the monkeys. yet she wrote some of the meatiest episodes of the show. Um, I've got a little song here, One Man Shy, A Nice Place to Visit, and, and then she went on to win two Emmys for the Mary Tyler Moore Show.
2: Exactly, and that's when I started to realize there was a reason to reconnect with these writers because... They were the kind of people we would follow today. You would know these people's names today the way that we pay attention to Chuck Lorre on Big Bang Theory.
1: Exactly. Well, what should folks know about Trevor Silverman and what she contributed to the monkeys?
2: Well, the cutest thing I have to say about her is the fact that when I asked her, because I asked everybody who was your favorite monkey, why don't you ask that? <laughs> she said that she hadn't thought about it much in the day. And, of course, in the day she was their age or just a couple of years older. So there was a legitimate chance she could have dated one of them, Yeah, which might have happened in the day. But, of course, she was very busy with the work, and sadly, the writers were pretty much writing all day. They weren't on the set very often, mm-hmm. so it wasn't like they had a chance to connect.
1: Yeah, Did they write like, on their own, or did they have like, what we think of as a writing
2: room? They had enough of a writing room to sit around and discuss some areas. Mm-hmm. And each writer would pitch oh i'll do I'll do the Italian mafia show, I'll do the Chinese restaurant show I'll do the whatever right and once those were approved by Gardner and Caruso, who were the show runners mm-hmm. then people would go off into their own offices or they could even write at home they formally they were just the beginning of the time when staffs were getting started. shows largely were written by freelancers right. So you'd have a couple of regular writers, and you, then you'd pick about 12 freelancers who would just go home and come back and bring you a script in a week, and you were like, oh, I trust that person. Mm-hmm. Coslo Johnson is one of those guys.
1: Oh, okay.
2: And he's quite adorable and fun. Uh, so their their rhythm was eventually they'd see who were the best freelancers and keep them on. So that's how Trevor got on more permanently, and she stuck around for both seasons. Right. I, I lost my own track of the fact that I asked her who was her favorite, and it was Peter. Hmm. I can see that. Thank you. <laughs> She's a Peter girl.
1: One Man Shy is probably his finest hour or close to it. I think it's Peter's finest hour with possible exception of parts of Devil and Peter Tork.
2: Exactly. And yeah. without her, the show would have fallen into the trap of always making Davy only the only cute one. Mm-hmm. And it's not true. And in a very you know, moment of last minute choice, Peter could have been... The cute one as well. Oh, yeah. Those tables. Because he's adorable.
1: Yes. Thank you.
2: (laughs) She told me this wonderful story. She was at New York. Most of the writers at the time were based in New York, and they were working for the stuff that was live TV back then, different comedy sketch shows. Right. And when they gathered a bunch of people together to see who they might want to hire for the monkeys, she was the only woman in the room. Yeah. Of, you know quality. She was the only one whose work they thought deserved a place in the room. Mm-hmm. So she thought that was pretty funny. And she eventually took the job and, of course, moved out to L.A. for that. And while they were here and they all they had to work with was the pilot, and they really, this is the other thing, as much as Larry Tucker and, you know, Paul Mazursky are brilliant, and no one's going to say they're not brilliant, they invented the pilot and they walked away.
1: Yes, they did.
2: So they don't have an influence on where the show went and where the characters went.
1: Not at all, because the the four characters in the pilot basically, to an extent, never show up again.
2: That's exactly right. And they're a whole other set of boys, one of whom becomes Peter. And she said that the big discussion was when you look around at a four-person show, right. as we discussed the Big Bang Theory, you're going to have your artist dad type. So, of course, that was Mike because he was tall and he was married. And, you know, for many reasons, he came across that way. Mm-hmm. And you're going to have your clown, and that was always going to be Mickey because he came from that background. You're going to have your cute boy, and that was Davey because he had the records already and blah, blah, blah.
1: Accents, yeah.
2: Then you have the option. You have the really stupid one or the really smart one. Uh Uh-huh. Who's funnier? And they sat around, she said, and discussed and debated, and she called it uh, something akin to hiring the next pope. And she felt that they had done him a disservice because, in the end, they decided stupid was easier to write. Ugh. so it was that close. he could have been oh. the nerdy, smart boy
1: I would have loved to have have seen him playing a Sheldon type that would have been hysterical
2: I think it, and I think it would have helped him because we have this ridiculous mistake in America where we tend to think actors are the characters they play
1: well, yeah, and it's like there's a third layer involved with the monkeys because. They, in a way, they had to juggle two public personas in addition to whatever private self they were trying to maintain. There was, you know, Davy Jones, the sparkle in his eyes guy on the TV show. There was Davy Jones on stage. And then there was Davy Jones, the actual real human being who would tend to get lost in the shuffle. And the same is, same with the other three. And the creators of the show and the monkeys themselves play with this tension between all these competing identities more and more often as the show progresses. And they hit on this theme and like everything they did from about head onward and even in some things in the second season. Do you think, what do you think that this kind of identity blurring did for, What repercussions it had for their careers and even just kind of um, for how they were seen in pop culture?
2: I think that it had a great effect on all their futures to a detriment both to the audience and, of course, to them. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a whole chapter on identity construction which is another piece of critical studies how we create characters and they they then turn around and create identities and we're only recently allowing actors to break out of those things uh, certainly if you look at Brian Cranston on Breaking Bad right and you looked at him on uh,
1: Malcolm in the Middle
2: thank you I was thinking what is Malcolm Mickey 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 no Malcolm <laughs> I have Mickey in my brain I wonder I have why Malcolm in the Middle of course and he was just this goof nobody yeah And then we allowed him to become this deep, scary character. We didn't used to let actors do that. We pigeonholed them deeply into one character. And if you're Mm -hmm. Cary Grant, you can play Cary Grant for 40 years. Right. But if you're Mickey Dolenz or Davy Jones or Peter Tork or Mike Nesbitt, as we know, sort of walked away from that concept because he didn't didn't want to be trapped in that. The other guys were trying to maintain careers in that world and to have The audience not quite be ready to accept the variety of things they could do was, I think, detrimental. Mickey, luckily, just kept working to the Mm -hmm. point where now he's a Broadway guy and he's doing these wonderful um, concerts at Club 54. And people are starting to see that he's this three dimensional Renaissance performer. Yeah. And I think Davey was denied that because of the bubblegum cute thing. But again, here's a man who came from Broadway. He's not just and I don't want to pick on Bobby Sherman, but he's not just Bobby Sherman. Yeah. But he got lumped into that world, and I think that was a huge mistake. There's no reason he shouldn't have been able to walk away from that show and become the kind of guy who would have a show in Vegas that's you know, not as kitschy as Wayne Newton, but that sort of thing.
1: Right, and, and sometimes looking back, it almost surprises me a little bit that he didn't make that sort of transition because he was very much in that, you know, let's put on a show uh, entertainer mode.
2: He was, but he wasn't allowed to. The audiences and the people behind the money didn't see the possibility, and I think that was a big waste on everyone's part. Uh Very true. So it's, to me, very happy that we're beginning to see that actors are actors. And in the way that the Brits do that, going back to Doctor Who, and you can see actors portray all kinds of characters. I mean, it used to be a terrible thing. I shouldn't say terrible, but it was pigeonholing to be stuck as Doctor Who because Uh no one could see you as anything else. And now suddenly we've seen with David Tennant and the newer brand of Doctors right. Who, that we recognize their actors and they can play Hamlet next week. And we don't go, oh, that's the dumbest thing. He's playing Hamlet. And go, oh, my gosh, we need to see David Tennant play Hamlet. Or now it's Benedict Cumberbatch playing Hamlet. I know. I would love to see that.
1: I want to see that.
2: So, yeah, I think it was very detrimental all the way around. And I've always, always resented the fact that people weren't capable of seeing this renaissance-ability.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I, I think that they're having, I think that's a big part of their their latter-day redemption. I think a lot of fans and sort of pop culture at large is looking back and having this opportunity to really reflect on all of the different talents that they did have and still have. Exactly. And speaking of that, why do you think that people are still talking about the monkeys fifty years later? Not just in podcasts like Zilch, but I mean, they were—they had the monkeys theme in the Minions movie, for goodness sakes.
2: Exactly. Well, I—I I have a letter in, it and I've never gotten an answer. I'm gonna have to try again once more before I hand in the book. Mm-hmm. I want to know why, when Davy Jones passed away, sadly. Diane Sawyer on the news announced it as a shocking piece of news that just came over the wire. And I thought to myself, now, really, because the show's been off in the, the air for 50 years and because their concerts are very niche-oriented, people think it's just for these particular fans, although, as we know, there's four generations of us by now. I brought my son to three concerts. so yeah. um, She was shocked. And I thought that represented a gut reaction to the fact that the monkeys had been important in her life.
1: Exactly.
2: Well, so yeah. they had brought to her some recognition or interest in in the world around her, above and beyond, in the cute story in her thing. And you can take that also to when, when he passed away, and Rachel Maddow had Peter Tork on, and she said yeah. she learned about the 60s through... When, when she was a kid in the 80s through watching the program. Mm-hmm. So it had a huge ability to teach people what were the issues of the day yeah. before they knew how those issues would wrap out later. Right, and
1: it wasn't a topical humor that dated. It was a timeless humor, but yet somehow they were able to thematically bring in a lot of the issues of the 60s, and in some ways those tensions that – we were all, st- or not we, I was much younger, but but that American culture specifically we were dealing with in the 60s, those things in some senses are timeless. They, they come up in different ways for every generation.
2: Oh, yeah, as I said, and the anti-materialism, I mean, we have the big, you know, small movement and try to think small and have small houses. Mm-hmm. We're trying not to be so materialistic. We're trying to be uh, a little bit anti-authority. I mean, I don't mind too much authority, but... You don't want authority to have too much power, yes. and so those ideas are still out in the world. They haven't really been resolved.
1: Exactly, and The monkeys is just, I think, an interesting lens to sort of look at that and engage in those things in a way that manages to, both the music and the TV show, manage to engage with it that those issues that are in a way that's both playful and serious.
2: Exactly. I think one, that balance, it's, it's the classic, a spoonful of sugar. So you can take mm-hmm. the news with that spoonful of fun. And of course, we can't deny that there's also a lovely bit of nostalgia. But the nostalgia doesn't mean that I'm coming home and playing the theme song from the Seven Brides and Seven Brothers TV show, or what? something like that. So it can't just be a lot of people want to tie it to that. And I know that's part of it, but it's not all of it, or many other programs would be having the same kind of resurgence.
1: Exactly. That makes total sense to me, and I think to all of us. We've only talked about a few small aspects of your book. We've mostly focused on the TV show, but your book talks about the music, the monkeys' careers, their cultural impact, and you're even going to talk a little bit about the monkeys fans themselves.
2: Yes, a little bit, in terms of what the fandom did for people, the community that it created, and how important that sense of community is. Exactly. Especially as we all live in bigger cities in the world these days, even bigger than 50 years ago. Mm -hmm. We have to seek out our own communities. And the Internet has allowed us to find communities with people who aren't anywhere near us physically.
1: Exactly. And and it's been, um, I think... I think in some ways the Monkees community and you know all fan communities are, uh, are, have become stronger through the Internet. I mean, there were fandoms before the Internet. There was a Monkees fandom before the Internet. But right. it's, I think this interconnection we have has taken it to a no, new level and certainly allowed us to have this wonderful conversation today. Where can listeners find out more about this book and about your other work that you do?
2: Oh, thanks. Um, I have a website like everyone on the planet. It's my name, RoseanneWelch.com. I have a YouTube channel which I post lectures. I do on lots of things, adaptations. I do lectures on Doctor Who. I've only got like one monkeys episode, one mon- monkeys lecture up there. Um, and I'm, the book will come out in 2016, hopefully to be timed with the 50th anniversary to be available. It'll be from McFarland Publishing, so it'll be on their website. They claim to be pretty excited about it, so we'll have to see. Their mantra was, to me was that they wanted academic accessibility. Good. So they wanted academic ideas that were delivered in an accessible manner to people who don't have phds and don't need to have phds to enjoy them so i'm really hoping that the scholarly community will start to include you know people who teach television i've not noticed them in all the, the textbooks that i've used they don't mention the monkeys and uh-huh. i think they'll mention the smothers brothers and that's right. wonderful they deserve it but the monkeys are doing the same thing earlier yeah i agree so i'm hoping that this book in that community and i go to conferences and i give you know lectures on my my papers there so i'm hoping that will draw more people into wanting to include them in their history classes and their cultural studies classes but i'm also hoping that fans will just think it's interesting because i'm trying to give people the proof that their fandom isn't goofy and silly and based on what boy you had a crush on when you were 10, but based on a quality piece of television that if we look at The Lucy Show, if we look at, yeah. um, as you mentioned, Breaking Bad 50 years from now, this is quality television, and this television is the medium of the last half of this century.
1: Absolutely, and uh, I think we're all looking forward to your book, The Metatextual Menagerie that was The Monkeys, and thank you so much for joining us today on Zilch.
2: Oh, it's been so fun. Anytime you can talk about the monkeys is a good time.
1: I agree. Totally. Thanks so much. (laughs) Take care. Okay. Bye. Bye. So that was my conversation with Roseanne Welch. I'm still sad that you weren't able to be in the room for it. Uh, What did you think?
3: I'll tell you something. I'm kind of glad I wasn't in the room for this because it would have ended up being about four hours long. Um, I am so much looking forward to having a chance to talk to Dr. Welsh directly, and I'm also really so much excited about reading her book. I, mm-hmm. I can't wait to see it. I I have to say that one of the things that really strikes me is that she wrote the essays that I couldn't or or would not have been able to. Mm-hmm. There was a time in the process of writing Monkey Magic when I started. Restarted, started again, deleted, restarted an, a whole essay about race and stereotype in the monkeys. Right. I tried so hard to write that essay. And in the end, I couldn't. I ended up having to take it out because I didn't have enough knowledge of the culture of the time to speak with any kind of authority or, or expertise. Um, there were so many things I wanted to explore lore about monkey chow Main and uh, black characters and, and jewish characters and of course the mexican characters um and uh and i just i had so much to say but it just couldn't so i really can't wait to see what what her full chapter on that topic is going to be someday you know i'd love to have a conversation with her on on women in the monkeys because mm-hmm. i think you know we have different as- different attitudes about it and it, it's really something that I've very much like to do
1: Yeah, yeah, it was interesting. I'm just saying I'm so excited about the book. Yes, I know, it's exciting. (laughs) And you were talking about having sort of different aspects kind of on your kind of take on how the monkeys treated women characters in the show. I was curious as to what you thought about her comments on Monkey Chow May, because I know you have a somewhat different take on that episode.
3: Well, no, actually, I'm feeling somewhat simpatico with her. Um, it, It is cringeworthy. I flunked it. Um, I, mm-hmm. I basically said it, I, I compared it to blackface, um, you know, having, if it had been a character about African spies dressed in tribal costumes and banging on drums, you know, we would all be horrified, but it's Chinese character dressed in yellow and red silk pajamas and banging on gongs. And and that doesn't make it any better. Right. Um, this is a, a, a problem I've had with the, with the episode and that's certainly no secret. Um, but, uh, it's, it's a little bit less so in episodes like, uh, it's a nice place to visit and a son of a gypsy, but yeah, there's, there's problems in those two. Like I said, I can't wait to see her, her chapter on, on that subject. I really am very eager to see it.
1: Yeah. I think it's going to be fascinating think there was something else you wanted to say as far as related to
3: treva silverman it's confession time it's confession time i have been mispronouncing that woman's name all this time i got it into my head somewhere along the line that her name was pronounced differently i won't say it because it's a bad habit i need to get out of it her name is treva and way back when Craig Jeff and I did the color cast commentary for monkey see monkey die which was one of the episodes that Ms. Silverman wrote um Craig pronounced her name correctly and I corrected him I am so embarrassed about that and Craig I am very very sorry (sighs) that's how it goes so I hope everybody enjoyed that
1: conversation with Dr. Welch. We're hoping to have her back on again uh, closer to when her book comes out and talking a little bit more in detail about it. And we hope that folks consider buying the metatextual menagerie that was The monkeys. I've gotten to read just a small bit of it, and what I read was amazing. I told her it's the book that I wish that I could have written because it was Wonderful scholarly uh, exploration and treatment of the monkeys that they have deserved for 50 years, but it is also approachable, and I think any listener to Zilch, based on the part I read, is going to get a lot out of this book. So, we've talked a little bit about things that may be coming down the road from the monkeys, but we ought to tease some stuff that's coming down the road from Zilch. The, our next episode will most likely be the episode commentary on One Man Shy and something else, but I'm not sure what. Ken mentioned an interesting segment that Jeff Geringer was involved in. Melanie, you want to share a little bit about that?
3: Yeah, apparently uh, our friend Jeff Geringer had an interview with Harold Bronson, who was the co-founder of Rhino Records. Mm-hmm. And I cannot wait to hear what Jeff and Harold talked about.
1: Yeah, I've read his bio, and he talks a lot about kind of the early days of Rhino's affiliation with the Monkees, buying the catalog, and sort of their early work with promoting the group. And it was it's really fascinating, and I can't wait to hear more of his story. And on another interview note, earlier this week, I actually interviewed Jay McDowell, who is a curator at the Musician's Hall of Fame in Nashville, Tennessee. It's basically a museum that is devoted to the careers of important session musician and sidemen through the history of pop music, not just country or rock or blues or jazz, but pretty much anything uh, in modern uh, popular music. And they have a lot of great exhibits at the museum. I'm hoping to get a chance to go visit there next time in Nashville. But we talked specifically about some of the most important session musicians uh, who were involved in developing the monkey sound. And we also talked about some of the most famous recording sessions that had taken place in the monkey's history. We talk uh, a lot about the Nashville sessions that uh, Michael Nesmith did at studio a where listen to the band and good clean fun were recorded. And we also talk a little bit about the uh, infamous Wichita train whistle sings uh uh, sessions and we will learn more about that and hopefully be able to tell some truths from some fiction. And then we wrapped up. Uh, he actually had a chance to spend up a couple of hours with Davy Jones once at a green room in, in at Fox news. They were both uh, appearing on a morning show and we get to hear a really fun story Of Jay's encounter with Davey, and uh, it was really a a great interview, and I think it's going to be a great segment, and look forward to that in the not-too-distant future. Uh, It it will probably be a few episodes down the road. I believe that Melanie is working on a top-secret treat
3: for us. Well... It's been recorded. Yes. It's going to need a lot of editing and sweetening with sound effects, but someday it's going to come and it's going to be weird.
1: Yes, it's going to be very amphibractic tetrameter.
3: Amphibrachic tetrameter.
1: Yes. Okay, thank you. You'll know it when you hear it, believe us. Uh, but we got and it, and it features some of our favorite recurring voices on Zilch. So uh, we, we all hope you get a kick out of it. And then, as far as things that are sort of coming down the road that you may hear more about in the future, I am actually thinking about putting together some sort of segment on the Monkees and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, maybe to be timed about the time that this year's inductions happen in April. Uh, I've got a a couple of different things about what I'm thinking about doing, but I definitely want to get other fans' voices involved in it. So I may be recruiting some listeners to help me put this segment together. So please keep an eye out on our Facebook group, and uh, I will probably put out a call for that at some point in the next few weeks or so about how you can maybe get involved in that segment and then i think uh, melanie's got one that she's sort of starting to do some pre-production on as well
3: sure speaking of the facebook group we've had a wonderful conversation these last couple of weeks about some of the rainbow room videos or rainbow rainbow room performances and so i was thinking it might be fun to do a whole segment about the uh eight performances and one interview that were filmed in Chicago on that day. Um, seven of which, seven of those performances we have seen, one of them is, only exists in Tiny Fragments, but uh, more about that later.
1: Absolutely. And in addition to all of those upcoming segments, we will keep providing you all of the big news that is still to come during 2016, the year of the monkey and the year of the monkeys. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. I guess with that, we probably ought to call it a day. Thank you, as always, for listening to Zilch. It is a wonderful experience to have you guys listening to us. So everybody take care, and we will see you next time on
0: Zilch.
3: Bye-bye. And that's our show. Zilch is an online nonprofit monkeys Audio fanzine made by fans for fans. Any samples of music or interviews heard remain property of their owners. We are not related to the monkeys or any of their members past or present. We are not affiliated with Rhino or Ray Bird. If you hear anything you like from the band, go on Amazon or iTunes and buy it. If you enjoyed the show, like us on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Thank you for listening. Until next time, I'm your announcer, Chelsea Epstein, saying always take some time to monkey around.
0: <laughs> Don't, now. Now,
3: really, everybody cool it, because I'm going to be able to get through this. Action. Hey, wow. It's a groovy button. What does it say? Love is the ultimate trip. Oh, gee, that's a nice thought. Gee, that's a neat button. What does it say?
0: Let's go again.
1: Luncheon out. Oh, God. <laughs> Listen to upstairs, downstairs. Up yours downstairs, people. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist. Can't can delete that. I sure hope so. <laughs>
3: I'm sorry, but your BG impression is awful. Well, so is hers. Well, that's true. <laughs>
1: uh, we can. He could delete that. I'm not <laughs> worried. <laughs> oh yeah. Okay. Um. Um. Another upcoming segment. I the other day uh, earlier this week actually interviewed Jay Mcbat. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
3: we he come yes
1: <laughs> uh got to talk to um uh got to talk to ah oh shit 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 <laughs> okay <laughs> okay it's still showing yellow but you're sounding better to me uh, i'm i'm sounding do you sound do i sound better to you